Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer. For years to come, try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. The Cannonball is part of the Agora Podcast Network. Check out some of the other podcasts on the network, like History of the Papacy. Join Stephen Guerra as he takes a digressive look through the intricate details of the history of the papacy, beginning at the beginning and moving not necessarily chronologically to wherever it is that history goes. And stay tuned after the interview with Matt Shifflett on Montaigne. We have a special segment celebrating the beginning of the Protestant Reformation. Be sure to rate and review on iTunes and check out our blog at thecannonballpodcast.wordpress.com. Welcome to The Cannonball, a podcast attempt to read all of the books in Harold Bloom's list of the Western canon. My name is Claude Myron Guzer, and uh, we've got something a little bit different today, again. Um, Daniel and I are in the middle of trying to read all three books of Montaigne's essays. We're taking this uh, in three steps. We're reading book one, book two, and book three, and that is some very dense digressive prose. To give us a little bit of time, since we're both recent fathers, we decided to let Matt Shiflett come on once again and guide us a little bit into what we're reading. Matt, uh, as you may remember, spoke to us about Moliere. He gave us some fantastic uh, contextualization of French theater in the time of Moliere. And he's not exactly a historian of prose. Well, he's a historian of many things, but not exactly a historian of French prose. But he is a a tremendous fan of Montaigne's. He's a a deep reader of Montaigne's. He knows a lot about Montaigne and knows a lot about the prose. And he thinks I'm insane for trying to read all of it. Uh, Matt, thank you for coming on. And I think uh, my first question for you is, why is it crazy for Daniel and I to read all of Montaigne? Well, first of all, thank you for having me. <laughs> and second of all, I think it's 
crazy because when we when we try to read a, a thing entire, we generally approach it systematically. We try to see an accumulation of uh, particular meanings. We look for consistency. And if you look for these things in Montaigne, you will absolutely go mad. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so I, I, I want to start a little bit with, I guess we already started, but I, I want to get a little bit into the background of Montaigne, and I'll, I'll take over here and give you the Wikipedia entry. We, we don't use Wikipedia. Honest to God, we don't use Wikipedia. But these are just some of the basic facts of Montaigne that might be useful for an audience. Uh, one of the things that Daniel and I were, were talking about was how difficult it, it kind of is to address Montaigne I guess more so than some of the other figures in Bloom's canon, because Montaigne, I suppose, isn't as well known as, say, Milton or Goethe or Moliere. Uh, Montaigne was a French diplomat and politician. He was an aristocrat. He lived from 1533 to 1592. Um, he advised Henry of Navarre. Uh, Specifically, I guess, legendarily to become a Catholic and give up uh, his Protestantism for the sake of the nation. Uh, he had a near-death experience, which you told me about uh, a little bit earlier. He had uh, sort of suffered the death of a good friend, which led to him shutting himself inside of a tower and writing a bunch of essays. When he was young, his father farmed him out to a bunch of peasants, so he lived as a peasant early on in his life. <laughs> his then, father had a very strange approach to education. <laughs> he was not. He was only allowed to speak Latin, and everyone in the household was only allowed to speak Latin to him. And this was yeah. experimental pedagogy of the day. And that was after he'd come back from the peasants. He was basically raised as, okay, you have nothing, you're working the farm, and then, oh, come on inside the house, we're only speaking Latin now. <laughs> I, I guess I gave the, the general background, uh, I mean, just the bullet points of, of who he was, but can you tell us about his persona? He... His good friend died. He shut himself inside the attic. He he looked inside the library and decided to learn everything and write about everything. And you'd been talking to me earlier about how when you read Montaigne, mostly what you're reading is his personality. Can can you describe that? Can you tell us a little bit about what the essays are like? Well, he was, as you said, early on a very reluctant public servant who quote-unquote retired at the age of 38. <laughs> oh, if only we could all be so lucky. Yes. And at that point, he he returned to his family estate, um, which was a major wine-grape-growing estate, and still is in the Bordeaux area. He shut himself up in his tower, and he tried to wrestle with some of these... Um, anxious feelings, particularly surrounding his grief over his friend Etienne de la Boétie, who had died young, and his own experience of having been thrown from his horse and nearly killed. And the, the somewhat mystical experience he had in the wake of that, of, of feeling removed from his body. And so he said, if if my own death can cause me such fear, and if the death of those close to me can cause me such pain, 
how can I turn the faucets down on these emotions so that I can get through my life day to day? So he spent a lot of his time in the essays wrestling with the strength of his emotional reactions to death. Okay, so earlier you were telling me about how he's drawing from, I guess, a, a, a triumvirate of philosophies from antiquity, Stoicism, Skepticism, Epicureanism. Yes. What exactly are those, and how is he using those to, to think about death? Well, first, you have, to accept, you have to accept that in classical terms, Stoicism and Epicureanism are far closer to one another than they are in our sort of popular way of talking about them. Okay. We tend to think of an Epicurean today as someone who overindulges in gourmet foods, or someone who is, in essence, a hedonist. That's what I was going to ask, is that the, the sort of 19th century reinterpretation of antiquity, that right. paterian, hedonistic... Uh, and that's of, sort of an adjunct of 19th century utilitarianism, uh, as told through Jeremy Bentham. What the classical Epicureans were trying to get at is a state that they shared with the Stoics called ataraxia. And ataraxia is kind of a studied nonchalance. It's a place of of no pain, of no perturbation that would cause us anxiety or grief or any of the kinds of extreme emotions that can mar our everyday living. Okay. Okay. So stoicism is an evasion of the extremes of emotion. It's not a kind of icy coldness or frigidity, sort of something close to... I'm thinking of... um, Pinchon's V, be cool, but be connected. Sure. Um, Stoicism, you can think of Seneca. You can think of Epictetus, who wrote lots of these handy little uh, epigrams that you can say to yourself to get yourself out um, out of feeling too much. One of the Stoic tricks that uh, Montaigne was very fond of is when you find yourself in a situation that that uh, gives you a lot of trouble, remove yourself from yourself. Look at the situation from the 10,000-foot bird's-eye view. And what does it look like from there? Or imagine okay. the situation from the perspective of a tree. The tree doesn't care. <laughs> the so tree just that- stands there. Is that sort of like getting at his observation that, you know, when I believe I'm playing with my cat, who's to say that my cat doesn't believe he's amusing me? I think that that move, um, you know, from a, a philosophical standpoint, yes, being able to imagine your situation from the perspective of the periphery. But when you bring up his famous statement about the cat, and that that is something that that everyone that's one of Montaigne's greatest hits is his observation. <laughs> well, thank you. The cat. I'm nothing if not unoriginal. <laughs> um, that is a good segue into talking about skepticism. Okay, please. Because that is not just being able to see things from another perspective, but sort of decentering your own uh, 
authority over a situation, which as the classics and, and there, there are forms of skepticism throughout the classical world, but the form that Montaigne was most taken with is what we call Peronian skepticism, which was a version that comes from the second or third century uh, of the common era from a man named Pyrrho. And it is uh, sort of uh, jumping off of Socrates's dictum that the only thing I know is I don't know anything. The Peronian skeptics added to that, and I'm not even sure about that. <laughs> Which amounts to another kind of ataraxia. If, if I cannot have complete faith in my own assurance about anything, then why get emotionally disturbed about this or that doctrine? You can see where it would be a very practical point of view for someone like Montaigne, who was mm -hmm. a sort of mid-level politico during a time of great religious and political strife in France during so the Reformation. What was going on during the Reformation? Just, I, I am sure, I am 99.99999% sure <laughs> that Daniel will fill us in. But can you give us sort of like the large, uh, like the contours? Absolutely. I will give you the broadest strokes imaginable since those are the only <laughs> strokes I am capable of giving. Um, at this time, you're talking about... Martin Luther as a living memory during Montaigne's lifetime. The Reformation still hasn't calcified into the nationalist tone that it'll take in the next century, in the 1600s. In the 1500s within France, there are still a lot of different factions that are in conflict with one another. Of course, the the king at the time uh, and Henry of Navarre, Henry of Navarre being a Protestant leader who has a lot of support in the Bordeaux area, which is, of course, pretty close to the border with Navarre. And so Montaigne, first as uh, someone who is sort of a courtier and hanger-on at the court, but then later in life actually becomes the mayor of Bordeaux, and it's in that capacity that he comes into contact with Henry of Navarre and counsels him to maybe not take himself quite so seriously. <laughs> Gotcha. Okay, so it's it's in the middle of the religious wars, uh, the the conflicts over Protestantism and, and Catholicism are raging throughout France. They're yes. breaking into civil war every five seconds. Um, it, it is too frequent and too rhizomatic and amorphous for us to even, you know, really call them wars. It's just an ongoing series of conflicts. Okay, gotcha, gotcha. So that's the the situation that that Montaigne is living in. It's it's sort of constant tumult, left, right, and center. Yes. So how does Epic to to draw from the specifics of material history back to <laughs> airy philosophy? What is Epicureanism then? Epicureanism is arriving at ataraxia mm -hmm. through um, kind of a pleasant middle road. Everything in moderation. Okay. So, so stoicism is uh, 
diminish the bad. Skepticism mm-hmm. is keep at arm's length what you can know and what you can't know, uh, a kind of humility or a radical humility, uh, at least as far as I'm interpreting it from what you said. And Epicureanism would be sort of embrace or cultivate the good. Is that I would, generally- I would only revise that Stoicism is, is not so much avoid the bad as it is um, – Get over yourself in thinking about the bad, and you'll get over the bad feelings. Okay. I think of Marcus Aurelius a lot when I think of Stoicism because I, since I was in college, Marcus Aurelius has been another one of those books that I keep by my bedside and I pick up, and when I'm feeling really lousy, I look for something he says. <laughs> okay. Okay. And he says, you know, when, when talking about, um, Things that that drive him to contemplate suicide or things that make his life miserable. He says, the room is smoky, and so I leave the room. (laughs) He's not encouraging us to commit suicide there. He's saying, it's a simple thing. Why get upset about it? Do it or don't do it, but don't let yourself get emotionally wrapped up. Okay. All right. So to bring this a bit, I, I think we're getting a sense of the, the philosophical strains that go into Montaigne. Um, to, bring this, to bring this back to the essays themselves, who is this persona? What kinds of things does Montaigne, what kinds of things does Montaigne write about? And how does he write about them? Everything. <laughs> One of the things that can be very frustrating as you're trying to make yourself make your way through the essays in any kind of a rational way is that the titles don't mean anything. <laughs> I've been finding that out. <laughs> yes. He could just as well have named them each after you know, different uh different brands of yogurt and they would have that much to do with what he talks about. He says that he will approach the essays, and that's a word that we really associate with him in the first place, essay, from the French word for trial. He's going to approach the essays as trials of his judgment. Okay. Not as trials of his focus, obviously, or he would have failed. But he will take an issue and he will consider it from all sides. And wherever his thoughts take him, he will take us along. And he has no filter to go along (laughs) with that. He will tell us the most intimate and embarrassing things about himself. He will, Such as? Well, he, he talks about his small penis and the injustice of being born with a small penis, the impotence that has plagued him as he's gotten older, how traveling affects his bowel movements. So he's the Howard Stern of the Renaissance, essentially. You know... I would agree, except that I think Howard Stern is, is trying to get a certain effect out of out of talking about scatological things. He's doing it for humor. Montaigne is really just running off at the mouth. <laughs> okay, so he has a digressive style, then, would you say? <laughs> Absolutely, yes. 
<laughs> so, I, it, I, on the one hand, and this is my initial experience of, of reading the essays, um, there's the benefit of what Wallace Stevens sort of referred to as, you know, you take it, you take it, you talk it, and you turn it about. Mm. That's exactly how every essay functions, and that's the benefit uh, of every essay. You you get something from so many different angles. But that's also the loss of every essay. <laughs> you get it from so many angles. There's no through line. Uh, one of the things that, that Bloom sort of takes issue with in, in the Western canon is T.S. Eliot. But I, I think in nearly every other essay that Harold Bloom writes, he takes issue with T.S. Eliot. But he, and why shouldn't he? he? Well, for for good reason. Um, no, he he should for good reason. There's no good reason why he shouldn't. But he he keeps coming back to this line from Eliot that reading Montaigne is like throwing a hand grenade in the fog. Something happened, but you have no clear idea what. <laughs> and I, I can see how that's frustrating, but it's also sort of what's exhilarating about reading Montaigne. Well, you know, and I've said this to you before, this is why I think you're mad to undertake them all at once. <laughs> I think of Montaigne as a book that I keep by the bedstand um, and dip into and out of as needed. It's, you know, it's like eating fresh fruit on a summer day. It's refreshing and it's got a little bit of nutritional content, but it's not a diet. <laughs> Okay, so I may have to quote you on that. Right. <laughs> there's so, a book jacket quote. Yeah, there, there's your blurb. All right, so what what is his influence on on French literature? Well, that's uh, an interesting thing to bring up after talking about T.S. Eliot, because T.S. Eliot was not a fan of Montaigne's, and that pretty much encapsulates uh, most of French literature's response <laughs> as well. <laughs> He had the biggest influence within French literature on people who were actively trying to wrestle something useful out of Montaigne <clears throat> while putting aside what they saw as his troubling um, everythingness, his, mm. his openness to every impulse, every thought. And in particular here, I'm thinking about writers like Pascal, and Descartes. What was their their animus? Um, mostly, it was Montaigne's rock hard skepticism that he would throw out some great ideas on a topic, and then he would follow it up by saying, "But what do I know?" <laughs> <laughs> So instead of uh, doing that philosophical thing about trying to get to a foundation or a bedrock, he just spins it away with the 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 humility of of human reasoning. You, Absolutely, he rejects you, the idea of a bedrock. Where Descartes will sit in a room and stare into a fire and try to think himself into certainty, Montaigne will sort of flit about and look at his cat and wonder what his cat is thinking right now. <laughs> so you'd said that um, he drops ontology altogether. Yes. He is uh, drawing off of these classical sources like Lucretius, one of 
you know, probably the best example of sustained Epicurean writing, but he has no interest in Lucretius's philosophies about atomism and the nature of matter. Uh, Montaigne really doesn't care about the substance of being. He cares about the habit of being. He cares about what he can do in his everyday life and how he can apply the wisdom of the ancients to live a more pleasant life. He's not going to waste his time sitting around thinking deeply and ontologically about where we come from. So that's just kind of irrelevant information for him. It's irrelevant information, but also keep in mind that in his... uh, in the context of his time, it would have been dangerous information. If you come up with a non-standard answer, it could Uh really put you at odds with the church or with whichever faction uh, was in power at the time. Okay. And when he traveled to Rome, he... um, So let's back up a minute and let me say he goes into his tower and he writes these essays for about 10 years and then he decides that this dream of living the rest of his life in peace at his home was a terrible idea. (laughs) His mother lives there. His mother and his wife. (laughs) He did not get along well with his mother. Um, So badly, in fact, we know that when his father died, his father put a provision in his will that he and his mother should try to get along. (laughs) And to compound matters, it appears that when Montaigne did get married, he basically married his mother. So between the two of them, he got very little peace at home and eventually started traveling again. He travels to Rome, and at this point he had already uh, published the first edition of the essays. And so when he gets to Rome, they're very serious about heresy in Rome. Of course, this is where the Pope lives. So they confiscate his essays, and they keep them for several months before they write him back. And the only thing they really take exception to is he talks a lot about fortune. And other pagan notions. But his branch of Catholic doctrine, which he bumps up against every now and then in the essays, is a very banal one. It doesn't really say anything that's going to offend anyone. Okay. Okay. So he tries to be as middle of the road as possible in terms of church doctrine. And it's striking me just... 70 pages in, 70 pages in of a couple thousand of very dense, <laughs> dense pages. That, there's not much in the way of Christian doctrine. That doesn't seem to be a thing that he's drawing from. Is that a defensive maneuver or is that just a pra- like a, a pragmatic defensive maneuver? If I say too much about Christianity, I'm going to get burned at the stake or hung or there's going to be an, um, an uprising in my village. Or is it just he's not that interested in it? Well, I don't know what the... Um I don't know what the definitive answer to that is, but just getting to know him as I have through his writing, I imagine that there's no deeply held conviction that he's holding back from, that he finds the idea of deeply held conviction tiresome in the first place. Okay. 
Okay. So <clears throat> he's enough of a Christian not to get burned at the stake, but he's not so much of a Christian that he's going to burn his neighbor at the stake. Yes. Okay. <laughs> so he's a this is, after all, the man who counseled Henry of Navarre into being Henry the Fourth by saying, Catholicism, sure, Paris is worth a mess. That'll do. So his T-shirt would have read Catholicism. Why not? Yeah. Okay. So you were getting into um, the the issues or, or sort of minor issues that he had with the Catholic Church. They seem to be okay with it. Just maybe take out some of the fortune. Um, what what was the publication history like uh, when we're reading an edition of Montaigne? What what edition are we reading? Well, that's a really <laughs> fascinating question, um, and it's it. If you talk to Montaigne scholars, it will probably attract a very vehement conversation. For years, we were using the um, what was considered the definitive edition of his work, which was edited just after his death by a woman named Marie de Gournay. Marie de Gournay became very close with Montaigne in his last years. He took her in as an adopted daughter. And in this definitive edition, he says many glowing, wonderful things about her. She was also a prototypical feminist. She herself was a writer and wrote some very incendiary things about, well, incendiary at the time, quite obvious to us about the capabilities of women and uh, the necessity for political equality. In the last, about a century ago, uh, maybe a little bit more, there was another version of the text that was discovered in Montaigne's own hand. We call this the Bordeaux edition. And it has a lot of his own emendations and edits written right there on the page. And it tells a different story than the one that Marie de Gournay edited right after Montaigne's death. So, for the next century, about, all of the editions that came out in English were translations that came from that Bordeaux edition, which at that time was considered a truer state of the text. Now, we go back and we look at that and we think, well, I think that they were shortchanging Marie de Gournay and her work, of course, she may have been working from an even more up-to-date version that she threw away after having it published, because that would have been the typical thing to do at the time. And um, if Montaigne really intended this version in his own hand as a kind of deathbed definitive version, then why did he just leave it laying around his house? <laughs> <laughs> and then you can look at the pages and you see, well, here's some residue of glue. So maybe he did rewrite this and set it right on top of the uh, version we have here. So some of the edits we see in Marita Gournay that a hundred years ago they said, oh, she made that up. Well, maybe she didn't. <clears throat> so it's not exactly the most stable text that we could possibly have. But we can work with something like a composite, sort of like it is a clear edition. It is a wondrously <laughs> unstable text. 
and in fact always has been. Here's an interesting thing about uh, Montaigne and his relationship to the essays. Uh, a few editions were published during his lifetime, and every time he went back to revise, he never crossed anything out. <laughs> he just added. He just added more things in. So he's the original Walt Whitman. Yes. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, one of the oft-quoted uh, bits of Walt Whitman where he says, do I contradict myself? Well, then very well, I contradict myself. I contain multitudes. That goes double for Montaigne. That's another reason I think it's hard to try, try to take all of him in at once because you hear him say a thing, and then sometimes just two paragraphs later, you'll hear him <laughs> say the opposite. It's that oh habitual skepticism. It's, what do I know? Okay, so there's one other aspect of Montaigne which seems prevalent in the late 20th, early 21st century, and that would be the, the self-help Montaigne. Mm -hmm. uh, a, a couple of books have come out recently <clears throat> Uh, something along the lines of Montaigne can save your life or reading Montaigne will make you a better person. Is that sort of at least somewhat accurate? I think so. Um, Sarah Bakewell's How to Live, which is a kind of a biography of Montaigne disguised as a self-help book, uh, is is my favorite that I've seen out there. It's lively and fun, and it's organized as the question how to live 20 times with 20 different answers. But is, is that at least a somewhat accurate way to get at Montaigne? Could we consider him a kind of self-help writer? Um, well, I think he was trying to help himself. I think he was trying <laughs> to help himself um, address the void, but without wallowing in the voidiness of it, like you know, Nietzsche, and in the sense that he was taking these classical traditions and he was subtracting the ontological navel-gazing aspect of it and turning it into a set of practical approaches to life, then I think, yes, we very well could look at it as a, a <clears throat> self-help course of study. Okay, so but if we're missing something in that view, I think we'd be missing the liveliness of Montaigne's own voice. Uh, because it's more than just a set of instructions for life. It is an encounter with an intelligence, which is kind of a magical thing to be able to do that at a 500-year remove, to pick up a book and feel like you're really engaging with the mind of another human being. But that's what I feel when I pick up Montaigne. Well, that's that brings up an interesting point. Donald Frame in the, the introduction to his <clears throat> translation, which, which is one of the two I'm using, I really have lost my mind. Hmm. Uh, but that's what he says in the introduction is that part of what Montaigne is doing is trying to write – a friend back into existence or write for a kind of companionship where the reader becomes this kind of companion to him. And at least from your affective experience, you, you, you think that's somewhat accurate. I do. And I think when you pick up Montaigne and start reading, it's like wading into a river. It's the current that 
you feel, not just the quality of being wet. You could get that in any bathtub. But to stand in this river and feel this current is something else. And when you read Montaigne, you're taking in the current of his psyche, of his brain in motion. That's really fascinating. Well, I, to, I guess we're coming close to, to the end here. We just wanted to do a, a sort of brief foray. But do you have a, a favorite essay or do you have one that you return to? Oh, that is a good question. And um, I think here is the time where I bring up my favorite and the saddest thing about Montaigne. I think Montaigne is, <laughs> is eminently quotable. Or should be, but he's not quotable at all because you think of this thing he said, you're like, that's great. And you're like, what essay did that come from? (laughs) (laughs) And there's really no way to go back and find out. Um, I, I really do enjoy his thoughts on marriage and sex whenever they come up. And uh, the one that stands out to me the most, of course, is the essay, I think it's called something like On Some Lines of Virgil. (laughs) So nothing that would give you any kind of indication that this is what he's going to talk about. But this is the one where he weighs the different sort of attitudes that men and women have to each other and where he sets up his idea that um, what makes a good love relationship is not what makes a good marriage and anyone who tries to treat their marriage as a love relationship is bound to destroy it. (laughs) He also says in there that you will see him sometimes look at his wife like he loves her and sometimes look at her like he hates her. And if you think that either is not true, then you don't know him at all. (laughs) Wow. So fun to read, not fun to marry. (laughs) That's the impression I get. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, Matt, thank you so much. That, that helps us, uh, frame our discussion of Montaigne. I think that really helps us get an idea about, you know, what we're looking at, why we're looking at it, how to look at it. Uh, That's exactly what I I wanted to talk to you about. Oh, good. I'm glad I could help. (laughs) Well, thank you very much. And do you have any last words on Montaigne? You know, um, I have some friends, some, I'd say colleagues, but they're much older than me, uh, senior scholars in the academy who had the good fortune to study with some of the great scholars of new criticism, like Frank Levis and uh, William Wimsett. And they have tried to describe to me the magic of sitting in on lectures from these uh, these scholars, because new criticism, I don't think ever really took off as a, well, I, I don't, it's hard to apply when you look at it from the outside as a way to engage with literature. But they said to sit there and listen to them lecture was just watching a great mind in motion. And that's what stands out to them 50, 60 years after sitting in on these classes. And I think that's absolutely what I get from reading Montaigne. It's watching a great mind in motion. Hmm. 
Well, thank you. I, I think that puts us exactly where we need to be. So this is going to be a horrible slog, but a fun, horrible slog. <laughs> it it will be. <laughs> well, you know, uh, as a semi-expert on Montaigne telling me that, I really appreciate it. Well, thank you, Matt. Remember, uh, if you just get stuck in the middle of an essay, remember what one of my own professors told me about reading 18th century dramatic literature. Just read the beginning and the end and make up what happened in between. <laughs> You're probably not far off. <laughs> and I think we'll leave it at that. Thank you so much, Matt. I, I really, really appreciate it. Yeah, no problem. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowl and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowl and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code Buttery. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. But wait, there's more. Did you know that this year is the 500th year anniversary of Martin Luther's publishing of the 95 Theses, thus sparking off the Protestant Reformation? Well, it is. And here at the Agora, we're celebrating in style. Travis J. Dow of the History of Germany podcast had the chance of a lifetime to travel to Wittenberg, home of the Reformation, for a special behind-the-scenes tour of the celebratory goings-on. He's recorded a man-on-the-scene spot just for the cannonball. He's also recorded a couple of other spots that you can find sprinkled throughout several of the other Agora podcasts. Look for Wittenbergian pieces in History of the Papacy, Wittenberg to Westphalia, Renaissance English podcast, and the History of Germany. So he tells me that he managed to examine up close and personal a particular object whose intimate use aided in Martin Luther's meditations. Let's have a listen and find out what it could be. All right. How are you guys doing, Dan and Claude? I made it. I'm here. Finally. So for the Cannonball Podcast, an exclusive... And wow, what a what an adventure! Um, I'm happy to be here in this less than once in a lifetime, once ever exhibit. Uh, you know, things are from the Vatican Archive. Things are here from uh, places like New York and and all kinds of private collections and, and museums and whatnot. But uh, I saved some of the fun stuff for you. So go check out podcastnick.com for a list of the video on the YouTube channel and the other. Uh, podcast that I did stand-ups and recorded for. And of course, this is an Agora podcast exclusive, so make sure you uh, hit up the Agora podcast feed to get the full picture. 
Anyways, Dan, Claude, thanks for sending me out here. This is amazing. Look at, I mean, I'm just walking by a medieval thing right now. There's a poor guy in a cage. There's the stocks. Um, oh, I'm going to get some tomatoes and throw something at that Spanish tourist right now. So I got to go, but wow, what a day. The, the weather's clearing up. It was raining this morning, but um, I got some great shots because I, I woke up early and hit the town. Now it's just elbow to elbow insanity. I bought an emergency sandwich this morning so I wouldn't starve to death, which I, turns out to be a good idea because even the ca cafes, the lines are out the street. This is just hard to hard to really fathom without seeing the video because it's just, this is a small town and it is just packed. Angela Merkel's here, uh, top politicians and, and uh, you know, church, church clergy from both Catholic and Protestant denominations and uh, wow, what a, what a day. I'm looking at roast pork right now and <laughs> besides the stockades and whatnot. So re really cool stuff and I hope you guys enjoyed that. And I'm going to go try to find another coffee here. For the 500-year anniversary celebration of Martin Luther nailing his 95 thesis on the church door in Wittenberg, Wittenberg, and in fact all of Germany, went all out. I went there for the cannonball and made this a part of a scavenger hunt across the Agora Podcast Network. I'm Travis Dow from podcastnick.com. Part of the scavenger hunt is the history of Germany, which is what I do. But the exhibit in Wittenberg took at least 11 years of planning, organization, logistics, and the collection was unique. 95 objects from around the world, along with 95 people and stories behind them. It was amazing to have a behind-the-scenes glimpse of the exhibit, a private tour, and crazy medieval markets and all sorts of reenactments and tourist traps as thousands poured in from all over to the tiny town of Wittenberg to celebrate 500 years. I saved some special parts of the exhibit for Dan and Claude as an exclusive, only to be heard here. Now, the guy giving me the tour, one of the curators of the exhibit, but also the creator of the original Das Geheime Kabinett, the secret cabinet podcast in German, was also on German TV explaining an excavation at the Martin Luther house, one of Martin Luther's toilet. One mentioned in Martin Luther's many stories, in fact, and when they had a medieval toilet at the exhibit, well, okay, hold on. Well, um, in the table talks, Luther claimed that... Um, he was sitting on the toilet while having the idea which led to the, the Reformation. The epiphany of, yeah. Uh, um, yeah um, uh, it might be true, um, because if you look at him um, in this time, he was an overworked uh, uh, manager right. of 11 monasteries. Yeah. He was um, at the same time city priest and preacher, and he was also responsible for lectures yeah. at the yeah. university. Yeah, a lot of work. Yeah. Lots of work. At, uh, I'm sorry, letters that he writes to and colleagues that well, I cannot answer your letter so fast because I have no time for doing that and not even managing to make my prayers, which I'm ordered to do so. Right. And maybe he spent five minutes on the toilet and had, had now time to think. It's yeah. the only place yeah. where he kept yeah. his head. And suddenly, yeah. And maybe, uh, like, like we be having uh, the best ideas under the shower. Right. Uh, for him, maybe that was the toilet. And Why not? And we are looking at a it's a wooden board. It says here toilet yes. seat, and yeah. there's a hole in the middle. And uh, it's, it's, it's it's in fact from, a, from a private yes. Um, yeah. uh, and this was from the Luther House. Was it's it? not from the Luther House. Okay, but this was yeah yeah. It's from from uh, Lake Constance. Um, okay, okay. Yeah, uh, where there's the condition there when boards would be preserved um, under best conditions under the earth. Uh -huh. In this uh, area, you probably wouldn't find wood in this condition anymore. Right. 
So we're looking at a very antique toilet seat. And, it's, uh, and it's a medieval one. You did, you one. did, um, yeah, a medieval, I mean, yeah. Yeah. and you did, um, there was an excavation in the Luther house where they discovered an old toilet which and everything, is, right, yeah, yeah. yeah, which you, you, you explained on, tel- on German television and everything. So. You, you said he, he, what, he used, he liked to compare the, the work of the devil to excrement, kind of, like he, that was right. in his writings. Right. Yes, yes, so. yes, of course. It, uh, it was fitting. A medieval, a medieval idea that you could use uh, uh, against the devil. Not just personal stories about having epiphanies on toilets, but quite a few other objects from Luther's lifetime and of Luther himself were at the exhibit. One object that I thought was really interesting that I saved for the cannonball was a travel spoon, which collapsed kind of like a pocket knife. But the spoon had kind of engravings, um, including a crucifix, like a hanging Jesus, and also part of a rhinoceros horn, because that was thought to have like anti-poison properties or almost magical abilities to make sure that anything you're eating, even if it was poisoned, um, it would have no effect. But very intricate and very well done, and would have been carried along on pilgrimages, which Martin Luther did. Another medicinal thing to be brought with you, like a pocket-sized, travel-sized thing, was this very intricate silver on the outside called a bizom apple, like a bizom apple. They brought from the Bavarian National Museum in Munich for this exhibit. And even in Luther's time, um, the, the beliefs didn't change overnight. So this is, in the middle, it has a very small, very delicate and intricate statue, like gold leaf or golden, golden-plated statue of the Virgin Mary. And then what makes it an apple is that the whole thing kind of opens up and comes apart into these apple slices. And you'd have, you know, each one was a case, so you could put medicines in there, or really more just something that smelled nice, so because... Uh, disease was thought to be carried through bad airs and had the added side effect that one smelled a little better um, on one's travels. But each apple peel, each apple slice has, you know, saints on the side and sayings in Latin, like Bible verses. And there's a Bible verse going along the outside in Latin. And um, yeah, just kind of really interesting that first of all, it was very delicate. And second, just the, the medicine at the time. It's really a nice artifact to look at. Another, almost just as delicate, one of my favorite pieces at the exhibit was just before then we came from Nuremberg. And Nuremberg in medieval, medieval times was first a metalworking city, like a blacksmith city, and then into the best sundials and finally to map makers and everything. And they had a pocket watch from Nuremberg in the exhibit too. And it's really not much bigger than a modern pocket watch. It's more rounder, more like a globe than a, than a flat one. But it was mechanical that I guess you wound up. I see a spring in it. So along with, you know, theological things and like early, one thing that made the Protestant Reformation successful wasn't just the theology or the break with Catholicism, but the printing press and the fact um, that people wanting to push science in like in terms of navigation or astronomy or astrology, uh, also astrology glommed onto independence and freedom of speech and such that Protestants had and Catholics didn't. It became a very Prussian thing, Lutheranism. The exhibit had, I mean, one reason that it's a German holiday today, the 500-year anniversary was celebrated nationwide, giving the Catholic South one more holiday than and one more than the Protestants. But the Prussian Kaisers, like Wilhelm II, were, were staunch Lutherans. There's They had one of the medals from... 
like one of the iron crosses from uh, Kaiser Wilhelm II. But many others, they had, you know, almost every Nazi writing, every Nazi book had quotes from Luther in it, which uh, tells you not to put anyone on a pedestal too high. But they did actually have um, one thing from Julius Streicher, which was particularly horrible. Like Streicher is, he was a bad Nazi. He was at the Nuremberg trials. He published the Stürmer, the Stormer, which is like a Nazi publication out of Nuremberg. Um, but it became, you know, a nationwide kind of uh, Nazi propaganda machine and press. And what they had at the exhibit was a, chi- a children's book um, written in that time. And it was, it's just kind of horrible. It was um, printed or published by the Stürmer publication house, publishing house. And it was specifically anti-Semitic, which just is a double punch because it's meant for children. Like it's a children's book talking about, you know, don't not to trust Jews and that kind of thing. But yeah, it's, it's important not to forget that Streicher liked to quote Luther too. To give the counter example of that, one of the per, one of the people who died in an assassination attempt on Hitler was also a Lutheran, and they had the map where he planned to kill himself, like to to escape imprisonment, basically. Um, and that it didn't work, anyways. They they spoiler they uh, didn't kill Hitler, but this was a map which he had on his body was there. And the next thing, if you just turn the page, was Edward Snowden's hard drive. What does Edward Snowden have to do with Martin Luther? Well, in this exhibit, it was um, the freedom of speech, the freedom or the the anti-censorship kind of thing, which Edward Snowden, I mean, they had Steve Jobs in there too, in the Macintosh. And what was he doing there? That was the Protestant work ethic. Okay. So some of the exhibit pieces were kind of a stretch, but it is really, so you can tell it's Edward Snowden's, it's not a hard drive. I mean, his motherboard, because the CPU is like gouged out with a crowbar, like there's heavy marks on the CPU. Uh, on the motherboard and the cpu was obviously smashed with a hammer because it's in three different pieces and uh, they took out all the ram and smashed it so i mean you know it's kind of a very neat exhibit very interesting collection of 95 objects some very early prints um some of the ways that martin luther got his the word out was printing the 95 thesis and spreading it through europe so it wasn't just in the small tiny town of wittenberg uh, you know, there was letters written, dated, you know, to, uh, October 31st, 1517. And I was there on Halloween uh, 2017. So that was, it was really kind of a trip to see that. And this is one part for more great history around the exhibit and more of the 500th Reformation Day itself. Visit the other four, which is History of the Papacy by Steve Guerra, Wittenberg to Westphalia, Wars of the Reformation, English Renaissance podcast, the history of Germany, which is my show. And hopefully there'll be links to all those in the show notes or go to podcastnick.com. Eventually I'll link them all together. And the Agora podcast feed itself for one last exclusive and putting it all into contacts and giving a summary. It was amazing. It wasn't just once in a lifetime. Those objects will never be in an exhibit again. Uh, They had a page turner from New York. Like literally they had someone that turned Leo the 10th pages of one of his books just because it was it was a illuminated parchment and just like super intricate and awesome and you know they had to make sure that not too much light got onto one page so they had a page turner from new york where it was from and turned the page every couple of days uh angela merkel was there it was just an amazing day amazing place to 
to be really. And, uh, I hadn't, I had access to an apartment right downtown and didn't have to like deal with overbooked hotels and people coming in from everywhere and parking and all that. So it was, it was, yeah, I, I just crashed on the curator's couch and would turn on the news and there'd be the town I was in, um, really amazing stuff. So please do check out the other shows and thanks. So Luther's toilet. Well, thank you, Travis, and hope to return the favor someday. Silly snark aside, that was a fantastic piece, and we're really grateful Travis could get to Wittenberg and record a piece for us. Check out the other podcast to hear how the rest of his adventures went. Thanks for listening, and stay tuned for next time when Daniel and I begin our three-part series on Montaigne. softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.